0: Too often, most of us will think about success in negotiation as characterized almost solely by, did we get an agreement? And I think that that's simply the wrong metric to use because the goal of a negotiation is not to get a deal. The goal is to get a good deal.
1: Why did I become an executive coach? I saw lots of great people fail to get ahead at work while their much less talented peers blew right past them. That made me furious, but also curious. What were great people getting wrong? It came down to helping them re-examine what drove success and then helping them make critical shifts one hard truth at a time.
2: Feel like you're doing everything you were told, but you're not moving ahead at work nor having the impact you seek? Then welcome to 97% Effective with Michael Winderoth where we skip feel-good, happy talk and engage experts in pointed conversations about what it really takes to move the needle at work and your career. So if you feel stalled or frustrated or seek that extra edge as you move to the next level, then look no further. This is the hard truth's playbook you never got.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Wenderoth, and you're listening to 97% Effective. Almost every interaction we have involves negotiation, yet we often miss out on important cues that would help us. Be it lobbying for a raise, working on our annual budget allocation, or discussing what we'll do this weekend with our partner, most of us fail to apply sound strategies that would get us more of what we want. Take a moment, write down the answer to the following. Should you go first in a negotiation or wait until the other party proposes? If you're a woman, What's the top issue you're likely to encounter when negotiating, and what's the best strategy to pursue? There's sound research that has answers to what you should do, but most people aren't even paying attention to it. Well, not today. Listen in because we'll have answers to these questions and more. And at the forefront of how we should rethink and perform better in negotiations is our world-renowned guest today, Professor Margaret Ann Neal from Stanford. Her book, Getting More of What You Want is a must-have on your shelf. It shows how inexperienced negotiators regularly leave significant value on the table and reveals how you can claim it. For example, she points out, you decide not to negotiate your starting package salary, but your friend negotiates a $7,000 increase. Over 30 years, your friend is making $100,000 more a year than you. Yes, as she says, think about that. Margaret Ann Neal is Adams Distinguished Professor of Management Emerita at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. She's the author of more than 70 articles and six books, pioneering work that has transformed our thinking in the field of negotiation, decision-making, and team performance. Her research, writing, teaching has influenced a really broad audience, from academics to men and women in business to industry experts. She's routinely sought out and quoted in the popular press and academia on how women can negotiate more effectively, how groups make better decisions, and the impact diversity plays, something we'll talk about in team performance. Professor Neal has shaped the Stanford GSB's curriculum, built the school's behavioral lab, drove executive education and women's leadership to new levels at the school, and has championed diversity and mentorship for junior faculty. She's also had dozens of firsts as well, of which I'll name a few here. The first woman to be hired at the tenured professor level at the GSB, first woman to serve as associate dean at the school, first woman to win the Davis Award recognizing academic distinction and service to the school, and of course, much more. Maggie, it is a huge honor. Welcome to 97% Effective.
0: Well, Michael, thank you. And thanks for that introduction. I'm impressed by her, whoever she might be.
1: <laughs> uh, your bio is amazing. But I want to take you, take you back. As we start, how did you go from studying pharmacy to becoming a thought leader in negotiation and team performance?
0: Well, my my route to finally becoming an academic and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life was quite torturous and circuitous. And it started off with, I'm going to be a doctor, you know, like a real doctor, an MD. But it turns out that that was more an aspiration my mother had for me. And when my parents were transferred to Singapore and I was left on my own for a number of years in college, I realized that I didn't want to be a physician, but I had already gone into pharmacy school because I wanted to maintain the ability to sort of be more than my colleagues. So I said, why do pre-med when you can do pharmacy, which I did. And then I was too young to practice pharmacy. So I became, well, let me think, shall I work for a dollar an hour? Because that was a long time ago. To How about if I go to graduate school in pharmacy? And I did. And then I discovered serendipitously, the study of psychology, because I'd never taken a psych course. And I got enamored and said, "Uh, I think I want to be a therapist. And so I became, I got my master's degree in counseling psych and was about to go into my PhD program in counseling psych when I realized there was something more. And that was the study of organizational behavior. I took a couple of courses and just transformed myself and changed my career trajectory And got a PhD in business administration at the University of Texas and discovered research and took off from there and I became an academic, and, you know, the rest of it is all history.
1: <laughs> it is all history. It took you through Arizona, Northwestern, and as a Stanford GSB MBA alum, I'm so glad that you you came over and, and impacted the curriculum. I realized you did reshape the curriculum before I was there. We won't name that year, but um, it had just been revamped, so I was very excited to be part of that. Maggie, you know, you don't just do amazing research and teach negotiation, but you also really apply it yourself. This comes through in courses that you teach, interacting with the executives and students. It also very much, if you look at all the junior faculty who have talked about how you have mentored them, has really come through. So I thought it would be interesting to start here with you know, just a snapshot of a, maybe a personal negotiation that, that you were proud of, or, or maybe the opposite. You know, was it was a disaster? Because I'm thinking that these probably illustrate many of the research insights you've brought to this field.
0: So, you know, there's a negotiation which is both humorous and of which I am proud, and it was a negotiation early on in my marriage with my husband, because I grew up in the South, and as a Southern woman. I was sort of taught early on to just do everything. Like, you know, the expectation was not necessarily that I would work for a living, but that I would take care of the household. That was my job, right? And so when I was a young academic, I was taking care of the household, but I was also working and trying to get tenure. And so it was uh, overwhelming. And so one of the things that that happened was that as my husband and I were trying to manage the processes we began to sort of think about how might we find a way to have this be quote more equitable, and I was certainly the, the mover and shaker behind that. My husband was perfectly happy to come, go to work, come home, and sit and let me make dinner. That was sort of he was great with that, and I was like not so great with that. But also, he wanted to to change his career. He had been a computer consultant, and that was not something that was really passionate. And so he decided he wanted to do something else, and so. He began a course of study as a, as a chef. He became, went to culinary school. And so we had a conversation where I proposed that we actually do, we work to our skill set. So, you know, I I study negotiation, I teach negotiation, and so whenever there was a negotiation, like, you know, if we were going to purchase a house or if we had to go buy a car, that I would be responsible for those kinds of activities because that was in my wheelhouse. And I thought that, you know, since he was becoming a professional in the culinary area, that, you know, he should take on that responsibility. And... To my surprise and enthusiastic <laughs> agreement, he thought that was kind of cool. So I, every once in a while, I think we, we over the course of our, you know, to, the, to date, uh, 43 years of marriage, we have purchased four houses and I have negotiated each of them and we've purchased, you know, a number of cars and I've negotiated those. But starting at the end of that negotiation, I walked out of the kitchen. And I haven't been back since. And I am now completely incompetent in the kitchen. So if he leaves town, he has to like leave food for me because I don't know how to deal with the kitchen anymore. In fact, we don't. If it were up to me, we didn't even need a kitchen because I don't do that stuff. And so for me, that was like, uh, yeah, I won that negotiation. And he was really happy because he didn't. He didn't like negotiating, and he didn't ha- want to do that other stuff. So he was like. Yay. And I'm like, oh, baby. <laughs> oh, baby. Oh, baby. Yeah, we're good.
1: And it sounds like there, I mean, you drove a lot of that negotiation and made the proposals, but it was interesting. You also took away stuff that he really didn't like to do <laughs> and you played to his strength, right? He was, a, he was cooking. It was a, a, an opportunity to do that. It feels like those are really important principles there.
0: Yes. It was a solution to a problem that he faced. Hmm. Here are things you'll like to do. I can do that for you. Right. And then there's this norm of reciprocity, right. Which we all know about. And so he was like, that sounds great because I really, I'm really excited about cooking. I really want this to be, you know, and, it was it was really it was a solution where uh, you know we can talk about it humoristically as a win-win, but my my win was a big capital W, capital I, <laughs> capital N on that one. So,
1: and you absolutely got to the title of your book more of what you wanted. Mm-hmm. So, so Maggie, your your book, people need to read the book. It really breaks down all the research. It provides strategies, examples down to wording, simple to complex situations but there are some fundamentals that are so critical that it never ceases to surprise me that people have not read or internalized that I thought a great way here in the first part of our discussion is to briefly walk through a a simplified negotiation, a real live one where I've applied your principles helping a client and in turn, they've they've applied those. So if we were to take that example, I'll just share it here with everyone, was a, a client who's an executive had on their way up and had earned and offered, was offered a stretch role, kind of seconded to take over and run a new region in the country they were in. And it was essentially the stepping stone to becoming partner. And so this involved relocation, doing new things, still doing some of their old role. And so if we look at this situation, and, and, and you talk a lot about in the framework kind of four steps assess, prepare, ask, and package. Is that that the place to start or is there kind of a big picture question this executive should be asking first?
0: Well, I think that there are lots of ways to approach this particular perspective. But the first one, if I were sort of advising, uh, what I would be asking is, you know, sort of what what is it you're trying to achieve in this interaction? What's Mm -hmm. your goal here? And that's that's sort of the assess component like why am I even engaged in this? What's this going to do for me? And what you know? What are the opportunities that exist because of that? So it's it's a conversation about what's important to you in this negotiation. Yeah. Um, and that's really the first step. And 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 but that also includes like what are the costs that are going to be incurred by this? This is not this is not a costless choice. And so to really get a sense of the kind of situation that you're facing.
1: Yeah, and 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 this case right this what is the goal the goal for this individual is very clear they wanted to get an accelerated path to partner and so there would the, the backdrop here was this was brought to the attention that they were you know, next in line. And this was kind of the final step, kind of proving ground to, to make that happen. So on the other end of it was the partner. But like you said, there's costs of relocating the family, et cetera. And, and I want to bring up this point because I think you make a very good one. Most people think about a negotiation is we have to get to yes. And we have to make a deal. But you say it's not to get a deal it's to get a good deal. Can you just say more about that? Because I think it's a very important point.
0: Too many, too often, most of us will think about success in negotiation as characterized almost solely by, did we get an agreement? And I think that that's simply the wrong metric to use, because the goal of a negotiation is not to get a deal. The goal is to get a good deal, which means you need to understand what that good deal is. So once you've kind of mapped out sort of what you what you hope to achieve in this interaction you know sort of the meta goal here mm-hmm. then the next thing you need to think about is okay well let, let's start some planning processes going on because planning is absolutely critical in a negotiation and and the more uncomfortable you are with negotiation the more important planning and preparation is because Uh, It gives you an opportunity to basically exert control in the process. The more you know about negotiation, the more you know about your own interests, the more you know about your counterpart, the more you can predict and prepare for how the negotiation is going to unfold. So at at a minimum, um, as you think about a a potential negotiation, um, there are three parameters that you really need control of. And the first one is, uh, what happens to me if this negotiation doesn't work out? Like And that is, you know, what are my options in the case of an impasse? And this is particularly important because this begins to give you an assessment of where you are in the relative power situation. That is, you know, your, your source of power in negotiation is your ability to walk away. Or at least your, your ability to convince the other side that you could walk away. You may choose not to, but, you you know, your point is if you can't walk away, it's really not a negotiation. It could be a hostage situation, but it's not a negotiation, right? I've got to be able to walk away. And the easier it is for me to walk away, the higher the premium my counterpart will have to pay in order to keep me in the deal, right? If I have a really good option, you know, let's say you're you're in the example, example you're giving, you know, we've got a situation where you're being offered a promotion, but maybe you've got another offer that's out there that's really, really amazing too. And now you're deciding this promotion or that new offer, right? That new offer is your alternative, right? And that's going to that's gonna inform what happens in this current negotiation. Um, and the better your alternative, the better your outcome. Pretty much, pretty straightforward. Lots of research to that. The downside is that we actually handicap ourselves when we think about our alternative because we do the following. We look at our alternative as a standard by which we judge what's acceptable. So I'm now using this metric of this other offer to say, okay, if I can kind of get to that level in my promotion negotiation, I'm doing great. Well, what you've just done by that kind of mindset is you have anchored yourself to your alternative. And you actually may have actually limited the upside potential by doing that. Mm. And so rather than thinking about your alternative as a standard by which you judge what's acceptable in this current negotiation, what you want to think about is that your alternative is like a safety net. So mm. imagine yourself, my, my, fa- my favorite analogy is, imagine yourself a trapeze artist and you're performing before a large audience. And in the middle of the act, something happens and you end up in the safety net. This is not an acceptable performance. This is not what you were working for. This is not what you were hoping for. But if you end up in the safety net, you're really glad it's there. And that's how I want you to think about your alternative. So that's kind of, you know, it's not a standard of acceptability. It's what, it's what protects you from the fall. Yeah. So that's the first level.
2: You've been listening to 97% Effective with your host, executive coach, Michael Winderoth. If this interview is making you think, make sure to share it with a friend. Now, back to our interview.
1: And so that alternative, if, if this executive is being poached by another firm <laughs> to go immediately <laughs> yep. to partner, even though they really want to stay and they're switching costs and moving to a new unknown firm, that gives them essentially more leverage, you're saying, and this idea that that's a safety net that helps Power you in the negotiation, whether you decide to use that or not, and how you might set your. I guess what you're talking about here is is uh, having a great performance instead of just a, a good one.
0: Right. So, and then then of course you're likely to if you're if this is all serious, then you're likely to go to the new offer and say, well, here's what I've got here. I mean, so you can you know you can yeah. sort of be, you can be very flexible in what to what is your alternative and what is your goal, right? So, but it is really an interesting, you know, assessment before you kind of begin the negotiation to say, you know, what happens to me if I don't reach a deal? Mm-hmm. And too often, we don't think creatively or expansively about that. And we kind of think, oh, you know, the, the void, I'm going to, you know, I'll be lost, I will fail. And the answer is, mm, think, think hard about what what opportunities exist out there that would be substitutes for the negotiation you're getting involved in.
1: And that part around thinking creatively, you know, we do tend to get in tunnel mindset. Is there a, a simple technique that, that gets you to think more creatively or that you've seen people use to power themselves?
0: Part of the issue is, uh, and, and this is one of those one of the to-dos that I say in the book over and over again. And let me just acknowledge when I say I, I say in the book, my co-author and I say in the book, because it is a co-authored book with my colleague, Thomas Leese. So what it say in the book is add issues. Do not negotiate a single issue like compensation. This is a bad strategy for negotiating because a compensation issue is a zero-sum distributive issue. It is an issue that invites an adversarial mindset between the parties. So... All you can do is kind of, you know, a dollar more for me is a dollar less for you, and we're going to fight over that, right? Rather, what you need to think about is expanding the negotiation to a multi-issue experience. Mm. And I, I, could, I tell my students, my doctoral students, my junior colleagues, don't put yourself in a single-issue negotiation. Negotiate multiple issues, which allows for trades. And you want to be creative in that, that package thinking about the resources that you need in order to do your job better. What do you, what kind of resources do you need? What kind of resources did your client need in order to make that transition successful, right? Maybe it's a bigger tech budget or, you know, more marketing support or, you know, any, whatever, you know, in, in my case, You know, more lab space, more money for subjects so I can run more studies, you know, more support for my doctoral students to go to conferences. All of those things were part of the package that I was interested in.
1: Yeah, so this whole part around assessing and preparing and being expansive, and and the good news here is this client did very much do that and think Mm -hmm. about, you know, if I'm going up here, there's the relocation of my family, some accelerated training that would actually accelerate them to partner faster but also thinking about the other side. There were two partners who were making this decision. And this very much goes to that second part where you talk around preparing and emphasize looking at the interests of both sides, what the other person, even if we go back to the example with your husband of what he might have to gain from that negotiation that you drove. How do you find out the other side's interests? Because people don't usually go around wearing that on their head or they may be, you know,
0: Except that they kind of do. Uh. I mean, so part of it is you, you need to spend time. You need This is part of your preparation. Mm. So part of your preparation is understanding what you want. And there are actually two more dimensions to the parameters you need to think about. So we've only done one of them, which is the alternative. We also need to think, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back around to the other two right now and then go back to your question. And that is the second one is the reservation price or your bottom line. And you need to know where it is that the deal goes from one you could say yes to to one you should say no to. That where's that tipping point? And that tipping point is a point of indifference. So if you are at your bottom line and this is really hard to it this is really hard to instantiate into your world, right? You need to be able to flip a coin and if it lands heads you walk away and if it lands tails you say yes. That's how indifferent you need to be. But most of us have been so convinced that the only way to be successful in negotiations to get a yes, that if we find that the reservation price, that bottom line we've set, binds us and doesn't allow us to reach a deal, we don't walk away. We change the reservation price. And then we begin down that, what my economist colleagues would call the slippery slope, yeah. right? So then we can get pushed further and further into a bad deal. So the your, your alternative, right, what happens to you in the case of an impasse, you Reservation price, the worst possible deal you could say yes to, they protect you from the downside in negotiation, but they don't do much. In fact, they harm the potential. And so you need a third parameter, which is you need to set an aspiration. You need to set an aspiration that is an optimistic assessment of what you think you can achieve in this negotiation. And that is based upon your own skills, knowledge, ability, the position you're in, the situation you find yourself in, as well as your best estimate of the knowledge, skills, and ability of your counterpart and the situation they're in. And if things went well for you, what could you do? How could you, what could you achieve in this interaction? So you have that, right, as a basis. But that's, your, that's all from your side, right? The question now is, you know, negotiation is an interdependent process. I can't force you to say yes. You have to be willing to voluntarily walk that path of agreement with me, right? So I need to understand you. And part of my planning and preparation is going to be basically understanding what your interests are, what your preferences are, what the challenges you face and what the obstacles are that will keep you from being able to walk that path with me. And as you learn more about your counterpart, as you understand them more, and you can do that by your own personal experience with them, you could do it with your personal experience with people like them, You could leverage your network and find people who've negotiated with them or people like them and get some advice, right? There are all sorts of ways you can kind of begin to to, uh, get your hands around who they are. Then when you make proposals, you need to frame your proposals as a solution to a problem that your counterpart has. And this requires the planning and preparation because you have got to be willing to do the work to figure out the ways in which that solution that that makes you whole, right, that keeps you good, also solves a problem for your counterpart. Now, the good news is folks always tell you their problems. (laughs) And, you know, you just have to be really a good listener and understand that when they tell you their problems, you should pay attention to the language that they use because oftentimes you can use that very language to frame the proposal. So, for example, when I was negotiating for my contract with Stanford, the resources that I asked for were in the service of the challenges that I had uncovered in my interview with the faculty and the administration at the business school, right? They needed help in a variety of areas of which there were strengths that I had, but I needed resources in order to be able to leverage my strengths to help Stanford solve the problems that they faced.
1: And that particular example which was alluded to you know in, in the book yeah. actually very much helped my client here <laughs> as they, as they thought about how they very much understanding what the partners needed the partners really did actually need someone of their skill for a period of time because mm-hmm. there was a major client in this new region that needed to be further advanced and mm-hmm. so this individual was in a position with a skill set to do that, and they really needed it because they didn't want to go up there themselves <laughs> to do it. Exactly. And so there was exactly what you talk about. And just to emphasize that point, in negotiation sounds like it's a lot about really good listening skills and not the impose or impale yourself on someone else.
0: Well, exactly. And that's, that's the, the challenge we face because, you, you see, most folks look at negotiation as a fight. Hmm. And that fight... You know, I characterize it as I'm going to try to get stuff from you that you don't want me to have. And I'm going to try to keep you from getting my stuff. And if that's how you focus on negotiation, you've already at a disadvantage because you and your counterpart are both going to armor up. You're going to be basically pushing and shoving. And all you're going to be able to do is you're going to be focused on who gets what. And, and as a result, you completely forego the opportunity to create value. Now, it's not that the negotiation goal is to create value. No, it's to create and claim. So part of what you're doing in a negotiation is you're trying to walk that tightrope between value creation and value claiming. Because I, you know, at the end of the day, however big the pool of resources are that are at, at, in discussion, you've got to divide them up. So you know that's the challenge for negotiations. We have to do these two things simultaneously, one informing the other if we go too, one, too one-sided, if we just create value, then we destroy our ability to claim it. And if we just claim value, we don't pay any attention to value creation. So it's really this kind of subtle dance.
1: Yeah, creating and claiming that value. And, and so with that client example, they looked at their alternatives. They understood where they should say just no to that secondiment, that reservation price. And they Prepared to think about what would be really good, the aspiration that you set here. And they said it, they set it quite high. Did the assessment work? Did the preparation work? Understanding what was in the interest of the part of, of not only the partners, the firm, what was at stake for mm-hmm. the for the company. And then came the what you call here the ask, right? Where you engage and leading also to kind of the ask and the packaging as you start to talk about things, mm-hmm. that came the I'm squeamish about asking for things here. It feels like I'm being demanding and pushy. Mm -hmm. How should we be thinking about that? Because I think a lot of people are very much coming, when it comes to proposal time, to asking time, they feel nervous, very nervous.
0: So I have two answers to that. Number one, if I can frame my proposal as a solution to a problem that you have, it's not nearly so scary right because i'm not asking for myself i'm asking for a way in which we can solve a problem that will for, that will forward your interests right so i'm actually helping you out that's number 1 and so that that's that co- collaborative problem solving mindset it's like we're not we're not negotiating and we're solving problems and that is a very collaborative process right but secondly I am a real proponent of asking for what you want. And the reason I am such a proponent of that is because there is a lot of research and a lot of my own personal anecdotal experience that says, you know what, people want to accommodate your requests. They actually, people want to help. And while they may not always be able to help, if you don't ask for what you want, then what you're doing is number one, you're, trying to rely on people's ability to read your mind, which is a really bad strategy because people are notoriously bad mind readers. But also, if you don't ask for what you want, who will? And it turns out that when you ask for what you want, you sometimes get surprised and people say yes. If you don't ask, you already know the answer. You're already there, right? So there's a possibly some risk, but the reward there is pretty impressive, because people do want to help, and so I see asking both as something that's good for me, but also people benefit from being able. We, you know, we benefit from being cooperative with each other.
1: And, and to that point, as you're asking, which was a, a question I posed at the at the outset, uh, there's should you kind of present first, and you mentioned kind of. This this idea of packaging, bringing in multiple issues here. Or should you be letting the other side go first?
0: Well, there's no one best way. So let me say that first. But here's the problem. Most folks, and I ask this question in every negotiation workshop I have ever run or every course I've ever taught. I said, you know, what do you think? Are you better off making the first offer or receiving the first offer? And on average, regardless of my audience... On average, about 80% of folks say, oh, you're much better off receiving the first offer, right? They kind of believe that whoever speaks first is lost, right? The empirical evidence is just the opposite, that on average, you're probably better off by making the first offer because it turns out that, that making and receiving have two different benefits, right? What most folks think about when they say, well, I'll receive the first offer is they get information, and and that's an that's an important consideration because negotiation is really an information asymmetry problem, right? And so if I can get more information, then then I have a benefit there because I have not yet responded with my counter. And you know, your counterpart can give you a lot of insight they make the first offer, you can begin to figure out what they think is important. That may be different than what you think is important. They may value things in a completely different way than you do, which makes it easy to come to a solution. So there are all sorts of potential benefits. But you have to trade off those potential benefits against the benefits of making the first offer. And making the first offer, the primary benefit is you get to set the starting point. You get to set the anchor. And For those of you who may have heard of, and I'm sure many of your listeners have, the notion of the anchoring bias, right? It turns out, let me be real precise here, the, the bias is called anchoring and insufficient adjustment. That is the bias. So we anchor. So I make an offer to you, right? You say, oh, this is an extreme offer because it's her first offer. Of course, she's not expecting to get that. She'll take less. But your adjustment is insufficient. Actually, objectively, I would take even less than you think I would take. But, so what you've done is, you've here's the first offer, you've made now an assessment, you've discounted that offer to a point. Now you think, oh, I've taken care of her extremity, her extremeness, right? And so now you go with it, but you haven't. And so that's hard to do in real time as an individual, but it's exactly what research tells us. When I make a first offer to you, it's probably much, much, much closer to your reservation price than it is to your aspiration. So when you hear that offer, your mind naturally goes to your reservation price. In fact, you probably think, how do I get to my reservation price? When I make the first offer to you, it's much closer to my aspiration price. So by simply making that first offer, I'm still thinking about my aspiration. How can I achieve that? My expectation is high. You're thinking about how do I get to my reservation price. Your expectation is low, and we all know from a large amount of research in psychology that expectations drive behaviors. So you will adjust and adapt to that lowered expectation because that's where your mind is. So part of it is just understanding that there's a whole lot of benefit to making the first offer, and we do know on average, more powerful people make the first offer, not because they've done a considered assessment of whether they should make the first offer or not, but because more powerful people initiate. So in general, most folks who say, I think we should receive the first offer are responding to that power differential. They don't feel powerful. They don't feel empowered in a negotiation. But I want to suggest to you that how you'd make that decision is you decide which of these two factors Anchoring versus information asymmetry is the more important one in that particular negotiation. But as a general rule, make more first offers because if you're like most folks, you basically want to hold back and typically want to receive the offer when in fact it may be more in your interest to make that first offer.
1: Yeah, this is where the research is really important in terms of looking at or countering sometimes the conventional wisdom out there, what you might be feeling. And I think this is the huge contribution that, that you and many of your colleagues have made. And so that framework here of assess, prepare, ask, and package, view it as joint problem solving. And you know, to, to shortcut to the end, the, the client did all these things and really found a win-win that got them in, a, in another position. But I want to add a part here. So the new info here, and I've been deliberately using you know, the client and they, my client is a woman. Let's return next week to discuss the dynamic and complexities that gender or other factors bring into the negotiation equation. Because Maggie, your research and work has added a lot to what women should do to best navigate dynamics within negotiations. So tune into the next episode of 97% Effective where I finish my conversation with Professor Maggie Neal at Stanford about how women can apply collaborative problem solving to do better in negotiations. We're also gonna look at the role of diversity in the workplace and how Maggie reflects on her stellar career in academia.
2: Thanks for listening to 97% Effective where we skip happy talk and help you break through and ascend one hard truth at a time. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, you can get free resources, including the first chapters of Michael's book, Get Promoted, on his website, www.changwinderock.com. That's www.changwinderock.com. W-E-N-D-E-R-O-T-H dot com.